0: Creepy crawlers, do you remember those? Wait, oh, no, like you're the too the, young. The,
1: mel- the melty rubber things?
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you remember those?
1: Yes, <laughs> they were dope as hell.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like if you were even old enough for that.
1: <laughs> I remember them.
0: Okay, you know they had a they had a TV show too.
1: Did the, oh, that? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, like I would have been eight. Maybe, (laughs) not to date myself. (laughs) Ah, well. Welcome everyone to the Science Pokemon. I'm Professor Collins. With me today,
1: and I'm Fisherman Don. There we go. (laughs) I said it this time. What up?
0: (laughs) Stealing my thunder. Well, we have an exciting episode for you today. We're going to talk all about. We're going to be talking about within neurobiology. We're going to be looking at uh, cognitive psychology and cognitive science and how learning works. We're going to talk about some um, sensory systems in, in dragonflies. Should be a really cool episode, so stay tuned.
1: Yes. The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook.
0: Okay, so we got to go to news first. It's kind of a slow Pokemon news cycle unless you're like a big Masters or Pokemon Go fan.
1: Sorry, I've been slacking on my own Pokemon Go. My previous job, driving around, I go to a lot of stops kind of in the middle of nowhere now and i don't really get any pokemons yeah i'm gonna fire it up right now though and see what i get this isn't staged this folks is this me just saying it right now matt did not plan for me to do this
0: <laughs> no <laughs> i don't think you should
1: i'm checking oh i got the best pokemon is at my house literally right now what my boy Dunsparce, dude he's right here
0: you know what? We, uh, the first thing we ever got in Pokemon Go what? was a scythe, was a Scyther in our backyard.
1: Uh, mine was a Pidgey, and then I got a Pincer, and it ran away from my sister, and she was really upset.
0: Well, we live in the woods, so we get a lot of bug types and a lot of grass types.
1: That's and what that's I use. I get a lot of water as a Florida person, and or half my state is water. I think I have like 12 Gyarados now without like even trying to get a lot. So for those of
0: you who are Pokemon Go fans... I know right now they're running a Johto event, and that's kind of cool because I like the Johto Mons.
1: Oh, all the uh, Johto, all the Mons in my house right now are Johto.
0: Yeah, it's a Johto event so going that, on right
1: now. I forgot about that, yes.
0: So they have, they've, you know, they've been running a bunch of mini events, which is kind of cool, um, and they've been adding ways for you to play even at home, and they've added, they've been adding a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so, you know, that's really the big news. We don't have much else right now. Though I will say, oh my gosh, you know what? I take it back. Um last week at the end of the week uh the next wave of plush was announced and i am super so the, ooh um, and they they added a bunch to the us website too they added um the, Do middle, we have stage, a snob? the middle stage starters they added surfetched and Ponyta to the us site and cram cram Cramorant.
1: whoa black betty Cramorant.
0: Um, so another new the new one that was that's coming in Japan actually does have your boy Snom.
1: Oh my son!
0: I kid you not, it's Snom, um, Milsri, and there's another Yamper, Hatena, which I which is adorable. Is that the uh, medium
1: hat or the little hat?
0: The little one. The one you just want to pick up and go oh. And then uh, Toxtricity and what's it's a uh, Toxel? Toxel. Yeah, they both get one. But yes, yeah, Snom's in there. There's a few. There's a couple others in there too. But yeah, I saw Snom and I was like, oh my God, that thing's going to like sell out like crazy.
1: All right, I'm going to have to get a Snom <laughs> for sure.
0: The second, I mean, it should be in the US sometime this summer. So yeah. Yeah, Snom though. It's coming, man.
1: <laughs> Snom um, is such a good boy.
0: Let's move on to science news. No more. Let's, let's move on to the other sign of the apocalypse.
1: Oh, we're talking about the Asian, giant Japanese hornets? Yeah, the
0: Japanese giant hornets. <laughs> the Asian Can giant I talk hornets.
1: about the bees, though, that killed them?
0: Uh, well, so a few things here. I just want people to know what's actually going on. Um, they started finding these Japanese giant hornets on the West Coast last year. Uh, they haven't found any large colonies yet. They just like, sporadically. So, like, it's still at a point where it could be manageable. Obviously, you can't expect the federal government, because our federal government is our current federal government. Um, But hopefully the state of Washington has their stuff together enough that they can handle it. Um, They really, though, they haven't rooted enough that they're posing major threats. But here's the thing. If you haven't seen these guys, I mean, they're, like, two inches long. And they have these disgusting mandibles. You know what their mandibles look like? It looks like scissors hands. And they literally use yeah, it sweet. to like rip. Yeah, they like cut the bees heads off.
1: Yeah, because they steal the bees children to eat them and feed them to their babies.
0: Yes, they're they're really nasty. But um, I will say is that apparently they are also like a dish.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I've I've is heard about people eating them.
0: Like in Japan too. And I, I guess I was reading um, one of the writers from Gizmodo who was on Sci-Fi. Uh, he was talking about how he, he ate them once and it was with sushi. I think it was on top of a, um, some sushi. So I thought that was kind of, you know, this would be the great time. Go, go catch them, you Washington people, and, and eat them.
1: Yeah. um, There's also, can I talk about the bees real quick? Yes, Japan? do it. Yeah, so there's this is super cool. Um, The Japanese honeybee, which is like, evolved alongside the hornets has a really cool method to defeat the hornet menace because the hornets like once they find a bee colony like the scout will come back to the hornet hive and sort of like be like hey they're over here and then all the hornets come and they kill the bees and they steal their larvae to feed to their babies but when uh, the scout hornet first comes there to the japanese bees because none of them can like i mean even in like a group they can't yeah fight it conventionally it's chitin is too thick for stings so they all swarm it and then they start vibrating their bodies and honeybees can survive like a slightly higher temperature than the hornet can and by vibrating their bodies all like that they raise the temperature and then they just cook the hornet to death yes and it's but unfortunately
0: cool. the american bees are not
1: there yet yes
0: we're just we're not there because it's not like they evolved the we,
1: we need before. to arm our bees <laughs> Yeah, reach out, make tiny tiny t- 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 <laughs> guns for the bees. This is, I'm saying it first. Uh, <laughs> Arm the bees,
0: murder hornets, and armed bees coming to a video game console near you.
1: <laughs> for real, if anyone wants, to like, actually, if any game designers are out there, I will chip into your Kickstarter if you get this going.
0: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, I just wanted to share that. I thought, I thought that was some interesting news. Um, that said though, we actually have network news, yeah, 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 I know I'm excited. um so I uh, I know a lot of you know, we've been working on this for a while. Um, there were some some blocks I, I know some people are feeling overstressed right now, so I so a couple of us just kind of went ahead and pushed through and we planned uh, all of our May events in a period of just a few days. <laughs> so we have two. Uh, on May 23rd, we're going to have a day of streaming and I mean, we got all sorts of Twitch and, and YouTube people coming in and doing all sorts of, of videos and streams throughout the day. And then at night we have a special tabletop one shot where there's a bunch of, uh, people from various, uh, podcasts.
1: Cause you only got one, one shot. Th-
0: well, it's a one shot. Everything you ever game. wanted. Yeah. It's a one-time game. Um, But they're playing a Pokemon uh, system, and I've I've read a a little bit about what the game's going to be about, what the story is, and it sounds cool. And then the week after, um, I think we're looking at May 30th. We haven't fully confirmed it, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be May 30th. That what we're going to do is there is going to be a charity uh, trivia night where a bunch of podcast hosts, and I am now inviting Don... Uh, while we re- are recording uh, a bunch of podcasts. what is this hosts. again so
1: uh, that way it's I know, gonna be I'm it's like... gonna be like saturday may 30th okay i can probably do that
0: oh it's gonna be great um it, it, so we're gonna be doing trivia for charity streaming it uh we've talked uh bagel noob over at pokemon go fm and i were organizing it and we were joking that what we should do is every time someone donates like 20 bucks, and they get to pick one of you guys to do a shot.
1: Oh, I'm down.
0: We're like, that would be like the most amazing trivia night ever. You're <laughs> like, right, oh, man. That, oh, man. Oh, that guy, his voice is so annoying. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't think we'll end up doing that, but it was just a joke that Bagel and I were throwing around that that'd be a funny way to get people to donate money quick. So, either way, yeah, come check them out. We'll be posting stuff on social media. Uh, again, seriously, come hang out with us in Discord. I, I know uh, Jared, who will be on our next episode again, our, our botany friend. Uh, he's been helping organize all the raid nights, and they've been great. It's been—I, they've been—the turnouts have gotten pretty decent at now. So I'm pretty excited to see that you know that people are coming, and we're happy to have you guys come hang out. So cool. All right, let's move on to this interview. I'm excited. You ready to talk about Yanma and Yanmega?
1: they're awesome don't sound
0: any more yin mega's
1: Mega's pokedex entries are so intense it talks about it biting apart its opponent's heads (laughs) like which is like wild for a children's game to have
0: well i mean we are talking about the same game that has yokai balloons that like lift children off to their death
1: yeah but that's like abstract this is just straight up like it bites their heads apart
0: well, apparently, someone's never read Pokemon Adventures manga. <laughs> I have not. Uh, to the interview. Okay, everyone. So we are joined here with Benjamin Lancer here. Um, ben, can you introduce yourself? Uh, who are you, and uh, what is it that you study?
2: Yeah, well, um, as you just said, my name's Benjamin Lancer. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide in South Australia in the Visual Physiology and Neurorobotics Laboratory. And our laboratory is uh, really multidisciplinary and um, it focuses on uh, the visual system of animals and then transferring that visual system into um, biomimetic and robotic processes. But myself, my background is in psychology and biology, so I'm on the sort of sensory side of the laboratory um, where I work as an electrophysiologist, basically recording from individual neurons in an animal nervous system and seeing how they sort of respond to different stimuli, different uh, situations. And uh, in, in this laboratory, the, um, the main animal model that we focus on are you know, dragonflies, and uh, sometimes other flying insects, but I'm certainly really focused on the dragonflies.
0: <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a mouthful there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. So essentially then we can think about it is, is that you are looking at how parts of the brain are firing and you guys are using that to code.
2: Yeah, Was pretty that, much, wait, yeah. What, okay, yeah, yeah. I don't do any of the uh, the coding or the robotic application myself. But yeah, there are others in the lab from engineering and computer science that basically take my findings from the physiology and then apply them onto these other platforms.
0: You know, and I, I know there's been, especially looking at this this physiology and, and the transference here. I know there's been some really cool studies with ants, where where the behaviors of ants are applied to how neuro uh, neural networks work. Yep. Because yeah, because I mean, essentially, one, each individual ant you know acts as a uh, as a single neuron, but when they connect together, it, it like fires similar, it, you know, it's like the same type of patterns that you would expect. Yeah, exactly.
2: So you can model ant colonies uh, with uh, much of the similar kind of models, similar mathematics that you use to model populations of neurons. And I guess just instead of being, uh, here, here's a bunch of neurons that connect at synapses, you instead have, here's a bunch of ants and and they connect. Well, they you know use um, chemical sensory cues and uh, transfer information to each other in that way as well so it is quite similar
0: yeah um, so all right let's let's jump in though so I want to ask you a big big million dollars question
2: yeah what is neuroscience neuroscience what is neuroscience well um, there are many different ways to, to really answer this question um, the broadest definition I suppose is is um, the science of understanding the brain, how the brain works, how the brain functions. But there are a lot of different levels that you can sort of uh, approach this at. Um, if we just go back a step and think of something like a heart, well, if if I asked you what is a heart, the one of the answers you could give was it's it's basically a pump, right? So if you strip away all the biology, it comes down to it, the heart functions as a pump. If we apply the same kind of thought process to the brain, what is the brain? Well, I I think of it as an information processing device. You know, it takes in sensory information, it it does some transforms with this, and it turns it into some, some motor output. So for me, the the core of neuroscience is understanding, well, how do you get a bunch of biological tissues to do that? How do you get a bunch of biological tissue to process information, uh, to respond to sensory information, and to come up with the kinds of decision-making and and behaviours that we see? So for me, that's really the core of neuroscience. But there's a lot of stuff uh, peripheral to that that's obviously very important, Um, going into things like clinical neuroscience. Um, what happens in various diseases of the brain or, or when you get um, traumatic brain injuries and how do you try and treat that, try and prevent it or uh, try and understand and, and deal with it or work around it. I um, is it's also equally neuroscience, uh, even though it's got a, a slightly different focus.
0: Yeah, okay, fair enough. Well, and I know, and, and this is from my own love of my life, but I'm going to have you answer the question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the branch that I've always been most interested in and was my foundation of, of, you know, what I was doing in my early schooling. I want to ask you what is cognitive neuroscience?
2: Cognitive neuroscience. Yeah, so that's another big one. And I actually, um, so I would say I'm a neurophysiologist at the moment, but if I didn't go into basically the lab I'm in now, I I probably would have fallen into cognitive neuroscience because that was a lot of my interest as well. I actually started my university um, degree in psychology and fell in love with cognition and cognitive neuroscience through psychology. Yeah took up the the double major in psychology and neuroscience. Um, But, yeah, so basically to answer the question, cognitive neuroscience is, again, broadly, you would say studying the biological processes that underlie Mm -hmm. cognition. But that seems like a bit of a cop-out, so, you know, let's try and expand on that. Um, So you can have these reductionist questions, like what are individual molecules, receptors, or, you know, ionic conductances doing... Um, and you can ask questions all the way to how a neural system's involved in what we call cognitive functions. And um, what exactly cognitive functions are can be a little bit ephemeral depending on who you talk to. Um, You can probably (laughs) ask 100 different neuroscientists this question, you'll get 100 different answers. Um, But I think of cognitive functions as as all those things we would normally associate with intellect, so memory, uh, attention, Reasoning, learning. problem solving, learning, yeah, uh, decision making, a language, so on, um, perception. One, yeah, so one of the decept, um, one of the definitions, rather, you might find in the literature, is that cognition is anything that involves an internal or mental model of the world and the brain manipulating that model um, as opposed to uh, m- manipulating pure sensory input or pure motor output. Um, Cognition is is really about taking information from the world and and doing some sort of reasoning on it or um, storing it or getting some sort of deductions from it. And then so cognitive neuroscience is trying to understand, well, how does the brain do that? How do you have a bunch of neurons, a bunch of cells uh, working with this information? What computations do they do to um, manipulate and store these cognitive models of the world?
0: I think you hit it right there on the head, where the way you phrase it, you know the cognitive deals with anything that you need a mental um schema for anything anything you need a mental picture for, yeah where yeah. whereas the physio- physiological side, you know like looking at systems and sensory systems uh you know that is more about physical information being input into the brain, yeah. Okay so let's talk about the reason we brought you here because you study the visual systems of dragonflies. Yes. What exactly is the visual system? How does it work?
2: (laughs) Okay so there's a little bit of a difference between the visual system in insects and um, in humans or or mammals more broadly. Um, So I'll, I'll start off in a more generic sense. So Vision is based on light. Light is a a physical thing in the world that generally comes from the sun, comes down, bounces off objects, and then is uh, absorbed by photoreceptors in our eyes. And then these photoreceptors transform that um, light signal um, into an electrical signal that they can pass on to other neurons, which go from our eyes through our brains and um, through various Places in our brains that maybe we can get um, into some more detail in later um, do what we call visual processing, which is trying to extract from that pattern of light that hits, in our case, the retina, um, in the insect's case, uh, compound eye, the pattern that goes into all those photoreceptors. It'll try and extract information from that, which starts at low levels, things like uh, detecting edges, orientations, uh, basic colors. Um, speed, size, and then as you get deeper and deeper into the visual system, deeper and deeper into the brain, um, you start getting more and more complex representations. So a bunch of lines might come together to form a shape, a square say, and a, a bunch of squares of different sizes and orientations may come together and form a building so right now I'm actually sitting uh, in my office and looking out at the window in front of me at the building across the road and I can see you know the the windows on that building are a bunch of rectangles and between them there are some uh, larger rectangles that are much taller than they are wide. And I know this because my visual system is picking up all that information, taking all these um, these lines which are formed by the contrast between the the white paint of the building and, and the dark of the inside of the, the window because no one's there, you know, COVID, all the lights are off. And so my visual system is picking up on that contrast and saying, aha, here, here's a change in light conditions that indicates that some, something has changed here in the physical structure of the world. We're going to pass that up uh, to the next part of the visual system, which takes all that together and forms it into a square. And, and then all of that comes together until uh, at the end in the uh, higher parts of my visual system, my brain goes, oh, I recognize this. This is a building. These are windows. It's dark because the lights are off but the outside parts are light because it's, it's currently about 11 a.m. and the sun's shining, and, and that's how I can experience the world. Um, so that's sort of the base, basic walkthrough of the visual system. Um, of course, it works a little bit differently in the dragonflies eye study, um, mostly at the level of the optics. So our eyes are what I would describe as sort of concave, you know, we've got our eyeball and on the inner surface of the eyeball is the retina. And as light comes through our pupil, it's it's hitting our retina and that, that's a um, a concave uh, surface. Um, with the dragonfly's eyes, which are compound eyes and with pretty much all compound eyes um, you would see, they actually form a sort of convex s- surface. They're made up of these uh, structures called omatidia. And each omatidia is basically one of those hexagons that that you'll see in a picture of a, a, a compound eye. Um, or if you look at one under the microscope, you'll see them as well. They're called omatidia and, and they contain a bunch of photoreceptors. And each one of those is pointing outward and creates what I usually describe as a kind of pixel um, of uh, the the compound eye's visual mosaic, visual image that it forms. Um, because But because the compound eyes are convex, they're pointing outwards, uh, insects have a much sort of broader uh, visual field than we have with our convex eyes just be- because of the optics. But once, once you get past the optical architecture of the eye and you start going into the physiology and the sort of connectomics of photoreceptors and... Um, visual neurons and higher-order visual neurons, there's actually quite a lot of similarity between the structure of a vertebrate and an invertebrate visual system. Uh, the photoreceptors, are they work pretty much the same, I- except in uh, insects and um, mammals, the, the way they function is sort of inverted. So this blew my mind when I first learned it in undergrad, but basically a, a human photoreceptor is actually active in the dark, and gets inhibited by absorbing a photon. So whenever a a photon hits your photoreceptors, your photoreceptors turn off, and your brain interprets that as a a light signal. Um, Invertebrates work much more the sort of intuitive way in that they're not active when there's no light, and then when a photon uh, hits them and is absorbed, this this activates them, so they become activated by light. one of the reasons I sort of <laughs> fell in into this is because I just found that so much easier to work with. That's just so much more intuitive to me. Um, but aside from sort of being, being reversed in that way, the structure of the visual system um, and, and the way it works in that we're starting with these lower level visual features, we're adding them together to make more complex pictures um, until we start get, getting to recognizing objects and, and things like that in the higher levels of the visual system works quite similar in pretty much any animal that you're going to look at.
0: Okay. So I want to, I want to tie into tie in the guys that I know Don is begging and waiting to talk about. We want to talk yeah. about Yanma and Yanbega. Yes. Um, the they're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, so Yanma's Pokedex entry talks about that. It can literally see 360 degrees without moving its head. And that it, it like doesn't miss prey, even if they're behind it. Um, and it, you know, in another game, it, they add on to it um, that they, in addition to this, you know, they can make sudden stops, turn midair, and this helps them hunt down prey. So, how does this like relate with the visual systems that you you are
2: studying? So this is one of those rare cases where the Pokedex entry is actually really accurate. Um, oh, so, crap. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you were just describing Yanma Yanmega, but that could easily be a description of dragonflies. And okay. In fact, I, I've just, just written a paper that's currently under review um, basically uh, about the dragonfly visual system in predation. And I, Almost could have cited the Pokedex, really. So, um, <laughs> so, so, what was the first point that was mentioned? The uh, 360 degree vision.
0: 360 degrees.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So dragonflies have almost 360 degree vision. They don't quite wow. have the the full sphere, but they're pretty well up there. Um, and okay. There'll be some variation depending on which particular species, which particular family of dragonflies you're talking about. And that's basically because of this idea of the um, convex versus uh, concave surface of the retina that I was talking about before. Um, Because the, the dragonfly eyes, because compound eyes kind of bulge outwards from the head, um, they can have facets on the side of their eyes, on the side of their head, basically pointing backwards. They can have ones on the bottom pointing downwards. They can have ones uh, above coming coming around sort of to the back surface of the head um, pointing backwards. So if you were to like put your hand on on the back of your neck, on, on the back of your head and feel up that the bone on the back of your head, just above your neck. Uh, if you're a dragonfly, you would have eye there, lo- looking backwards. So, like, should should Yanma and, and Yanmega then,
0: like, should they they just have like really good evasion at all times?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, they do and, learn double team. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. So, well, well one of the things was uh, compound eyes in uh, Pokemon. The the ability. Um, yeah. I think it's a uh, Pokemon's accuracy is boosted.
1: It is, yeah. but they yeah. shockingly don't learn it. Actually, they do learn tented Lens though, which is like similar thing, but it boosts their attack power for res- resisted moves. But I think it still is like a reference to their eyeballs.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I do like that for dragonflies. But uh, overall, uh, compound eyes—it's been a bit one of the pet peeves of mine in Pokemon because compound eyes have really poor spatial resolution. Um, really, really poor spatial resolution. Um, uh, but because of the convexness, their uh, their evasion could be really good because they could see everywhere. So, you know, I would love to see that retconned in Pokemon, but but yeah, I, I doubt you, uh,
1: you, butterfree sleep powder jabronies out there. you Hear that? <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> We're taking it back. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fair enough, Don. Don is not sour about that or anything.
1: As a person that actually runs sleep powder butter free like a lot, I I'm, I'm okay with it being wrong.
0: Okay. So I want to move on. We're going to talk to some cognitive and learning. Yep. So, how does learning work in the brain? Is the process the same for all organisms?
2: Yeah, it pretty it pretty much is. Um it was actually the the processes were first discovered in uh, sea slugs and a, a lot of Um, A lot of initial research was on that, but then it's been shown in um, many other species up into humans. And there there are a couple of ways to answer this question, but I'll I'll start with a reductionist first approach, because that's sort of the way I like to think of things. But basically, when you're learning, what's happening is you have some neurons uh, in your brain that are essentially getting wired together. Neurons are connected together by things called synapses. um, And that's basically just a space between the the neurons that allow them to chemically communicate. Um, And these can change in strength. So on the what we call the presynaptic neuron, which is the one that's sort of uh, upstream. That'll release neurotransmitters, and these neurotransmitters will drift across the synapse. It's an incredibly small space, and they'll bind to receptors on the postsynaptic neuron and, and cause a response in that neuron. So when you're learning, what's happening is these synapses are changing in strength, and there are a couple of ways they can do that. You can have the postsynaptic neuron release more, of a, more neurotransmitters, and that'll result in a, a stronger signal, um, or you can have it, you know, do the opposite, release n- less neurotransmitters. And on the other side of the synapse, you can have the uh, postsynaptic neuron synthesize and and put in its membrane more or less receptors. And this allows you to change the strength or weighting of of that synapse. And these two processes, they're referred to as long-term potentiation, which is increasing the strength of a synapse. But also equally important, long-term depression, which decreases the strength of a synapse. Now, I kind of want to stress that because something I've seen in in many of my students is they get really excited about long-term potentiation and remember that, but long-term depression really is just as important. You know, as signals, sometimes what isn't there or what is suppressed can be as important as as what is there. And a really good example of that is, you know, Morse code, if it was just a constant uh, beep. It wouldn't mean anything, right? Yes.
0: So, so it's that's not just what's there; it's what's not.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that that long-term depression and long-term potentiation are the way synapses change. But let's take it up a level and, and look at neural circuits. When you have a whole bunch of neurons connected together, it's the pattern of activity across them, across a population, that encodes information.
0: So, in the Pokemon. Um, The monsters only learn like four moves at a time. Well, you know, this makes sense. Obviously, for video game mechanics, other adaptations of of the media.
1: Five moves. Let's go.
0: Yeah. They also have the same condition. And it's a bit baffling. Is there a reason an organism would have like a finite amount of memory or learning they could do?
2: Uh, this is a hard. This is a really hard question. You would think about it initially. You know, the brain is a physical object. There is a physical amount of neurons. There is, you know, a physical amount of possible connections between them. So there, kind of, in a sense, has to be some sort of physical limit to memory. But whatever that physical limit is, uh, we haven't found. It. We show no sort of real evidence. In, um, evidence. There is the answer that. I was looking for. So. <laughs> You know, people can can basically, there's no upper limit on how much you can remember, and it's not like if, if I teach you that the capital of France is Paris, you have to go through. Not that I think you didn't already know that, um, but if I teach you a new fact, you know, you don't have to go through and, and select some fact you're going to forget to make space for this. Um, yes. But is there a reason that Pokemon might have to? So, you know, we can try some, we can think, we can sort of speculate as to what an answer to this question might be. And if I'm remembering my Pokedex entries correctly, you know, Pikachu can make like 10,000 volts and Makago is the same heat as the surface of the the sun. sun.
1: As the sun, yep. (laughs) You
2: know, um, if we take these at face value or even if we uh, tone them down a little bit, that is going to require a huge amount of energy to to do these things. Um, I never thought about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, the brain also requires a huge amount of energy. Even if you have a neuron neuron sitting there, it's not actively firing, it's not actively doing anything, it's not involved in the task you're doing. It still requires a huge amount of energy um, to just be there and be supported and and keep alive. Um, So part of the reason that our brains were able to get so big and so complex uh, there are many reasons for it but part of the reason is that we learn to sort of cook our food and make our food our diet more energy efficient. but even so the the brain takes up something like 25 to 30 percent of the oxygen you're breathing in at rest and that just increases whenever you're doing a, any kind of mental activity. So Pokemon, maybe they're doing some sort of trade-off in order to gain these fantastic, uh, abilities that we obviously don't have and, and real um, real animals don't have in order to gain the kind of energy budget needed to, to do these things they're going to have to cut somewhere. So maybe um, one of the compromises they made is uh, in their nervous systems and reducing their ability to store information so they're optimizing. They're saying, I'm going to be able to do these four things really well, really cool. I'm going to be able to make 10,000-volt thunderbolts. I'm going to be able to generate the heat of the sun, but I can only do four things um, because I don't want to have to pay the memory, uh, the, the sort of metabolic upkeep, the metabolic cost for having a hugely complex brain that can remember Lots and lots of things.
0: So, so Ben, are you are you saying that every 80s stereotype that the smart guy is always super tiny, and the physically fit guy has no brain? There, there, there might be some science there.
2: <laughs> yes, ab- definitely. All the energy, so all are... the energy is used on
0: upkeeping your muscles. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are there are no no third complicating factors I, I can think of at least. <laughs>
0: Okay. No, but that was an awesome answer. I, I have to say, I didn't expect you to go there. And I, and now you have me thinking about like, that really could be the trade-off because the amount of energy you need to do some of these things, like something else would have to give.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's and that's crazy. That, I had never thought about that. That's a pattern you see throughout biology because yeah, um, things... Things have costs in biology. You well, need to it's aim.
0: not like they're eating high quality food. They're eating, you know, they're eating jelly donuts. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, then I'm going to move on. Um, so yeah. you also have experience with, with neurophysiology and you've talked briefly about that. Um, but we, we mentioned sensory systems. Yeah. What are sensory systems?
2: What are sensory systems? Okay. Yeah. So um, you can think of... There is a world out there, right? It is a it is a physical place, and it contains physical things, and we have these organisms that are, are moving around in this world, and so in order to increase their chances of survival, they. Um, want to be able to interact with the world. They also want to be able to tell what's going on in the world. Unfortunately, because um, both the organism and the world are physical and they can have physical interactions, there are certain um, cues we can pick up from the world that tell us about it. So one of those is vision. Light is a thing. We can we have photoreceptors which can absorb light so we can see the um, different sort of spectral information Um polarization information, uh, distance information, uh, we can get from light. So that's one sensory system. It's basically taking some physical information about the world and taking it in via a sensory receptor, which responds to changes in that physical information, and then trying to work out, okay, this receptor's state has changed. What does that tell me about the external state of the world? So as I mentioned before, I'm a visual neuroscientist. I focus on the visual system, but there are all other sensory systems. You know, there are the main five we're all taught about in in primary school, vision and and sound, um, which is a response to, you know, the rarefication and um, densification of air molecules. There's smell, which is a response to chemicals that are floating around in the environment. And there are all these other uh, cues that we can make use of to get information about our environment and when it comes down to sort of the most basic definition that's what a sensory system is um it's a system for taking some cue in the environment and turning it into some meaningful internal model about what we believe the state of the world to be like
0: fair enough so then i guess my next question is then how do these systems differ amongst organisms like why why and and like why do they need to differ
1: well, they, they
2: need to differ because organisms are interested in different things. So uh, a dragonfly, um, what I study, they're primarily visual creatures. Uh, vision is is certainly their most well-developed sense um, okay. because they don't, they don't need any others. They can use their visual system to catch prey at incredibly high success rates. Um, they can so, use it. To, yeah. So like
0: if Yanma, if this was Pokemon, so Yanma yeah. would be like, based on visual systems because it does have those big eyes yeah but then like no nose pass would
2: have good sense of smell
1: yeah it's also got yeah. sweet magnet powers <laughs> it's a yeah. compass
2: yeah exactly and and that's that's something else we see throughout the animal kingdom and the sort of the point i was alluding to before different animals care about different things and so they have different sensory systems. So we've got birds that navigate um, using basically magnet powers um, so they can fly home or or know in which directions to migrate but other uh, species don't don't need to migrate like that so they don't have those sensory systems. You've got you know like um, one great example actually is the weekly electric fish um, and they are these cave fish that started I actually out... have
1: some cave tetras in a tank. Yeah? And they have no eyes and do the same thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, so so exactly they have no eyes because your vision wouldn't be very very useful to them because they're in a constantly dark environment. So so why spend that metabolic energy developing and maintaining eyes when they can use this other sensory system? Um, And in in the case of the weekly electric fish, they they, um, have an electric sense and they can pick up basically the muscle movements of the animals around them and they use that to find each other. Uh, They use that to find prey. And one really cool sort of factoid about these guys is the males will actually try and jam each other's electrical signals so a female sees only them, even though she might be within the area of of 20 males, the strongest one is able to jam the signals from the other other, uh, 19, so she thinks that, um, that he's the only one. And so animals can make use of their own sensory systems and the sensory systems of those around them um, either their prey or um, potential reproductive mates to try and alter the other animal's beliefs about the world to their own advantage.
1: Okay, this is more just a dragonfly question in general. Yeah. So they're they're really fast. Um, yeah. As like both Yama and Yamega also have speed boosts as an ability. Um, are they're like one of the fastest insects, or they're like up there, right?
2: Yeah, they're definitely up there. I'm not sure if they are the fastest. I would not be surprised at all to learn they were, um, but I, I don't definitely know that. But they're definitely the most maneuverable.
0: All right. Well, then that said, I I, I guess then I just want to ask my this question: If the Pokemon world's biology is similar to ours, and and yeah. we we would agree agree that you know, things would wire similarly. Is there any Pokemon particularly that you feel would have to have like a unique sensory system? I mean, we, we already mentioned two, but is there anything else that you can think of that you're like, this, this just stands out?
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't think anything really stands out. I, the broad answer to the question is, well, every Pokemon is going to have its, every Pokemon's going to have a unique sensory system because every Pokemon is going to go around its world, its ecology, caring about different things. Um, there's obviously psychic Pokemon and and whatever the psychic sensation is based on. um, I'm not 100% sure, but maybe because the brain uh, works via electricity and it does produce electric fields um, and you can pick these up. That's what a lot of brain research is based on. Maybe psychic Pokemon are able to pick up on the subtle electric fields um, that a brain makes, and then also influence those electric fields to get the psychic effects. So that's a really interesting take on on psychic Pokemon. I guess that makes them um, electric Pokemon (laughs) in a way. Um,
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. So with that said, if our listeners wanted to follow your work, where could they do so?
2: So I'm on Twitter as Benjamin underscore Lancer. Um, I don't actually remember if capitals are important on Twitter so maybe I'll just check that <laughs> <laughs> do you know off the top of your head
0: I have no idea
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah.
0: I am I am not a good Twitter person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so yeah, no capitals at Benjamin underscore Lancer. That's B-N-J-M-I-N underscore L-A-N-C-E-R. And, you know, I post on there uh, about science, about any cool animal facts or papers I come across and find really interesting. I like to share. I also do a lot of wildlife photography. So I post a lot of the pictures I take on there as well.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, Benjamin, thank you so very much for joining us. Wait, wait,
1: wait. I have one more question.
0: Oh. Yeah. All right.
1: Uh, sorry. if I, I try to ask this to every guest, and I remember about 70%. Of oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If there was one real-life animal it's not, that's not a Pokemon yet, but you can make it be a Pokemon, what is it?
2: Can I say the Dragonfly Nymph?
1: Ooh, yes.
2: Uh, yeah. so Would dragon... it
1: be like a baby uh, okay. young Mega or its own thing?
2: Well, uh, I don't know. It it could either be a baby mega or its own thing. One of the really cool things about dragonfly nymphs is that they can survive for years um, under the water, and they'll only emerge when the water temperature reaches a certain point, but they are fantastic ambush predators in their own right. They have Um, their awesome
1: lower jaw thing. Yeah. Sorry, I I have one attack. They're cool.
2: Yeah, they are so cool. They're they're basically a complete animal, except they need to turn into a dragonfly to reproduce. So, actually, what I would want to say is whether they're their own thing and then evolve into another dragonfly Pokemon or like a a baby Yanma. I would want to say they have a a special rule for evolving, like maybe has to be holding a Heat Stone would be cool. But I would really want them to be able to be a good Pokemon without evolving in their own right and let the let the player choose. Hey, Whether they even, even
0: Trappinch has been doing stuff in Competitive.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Because ant lions are like Dragonfly Nymphs, but in sand. And they're yeah, really good yeah, at killing things. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my answer. Dragonfly Nymph. And I would really want to emphasize the fact that it, in his own right, is a really cool little critter.
1: I really like that. This one of my favorite answers ever, honestly, to this question.
0: Great. Nintendo, <laughs> do it. <sighs> all right thank you so very much we'll uh, we'll talk to you again
1: have a good one
0: great fun see you around
2: <laughs>
0: well there was definitely a lot there <laughs> a lot to talk about
1: i liked it dragonflies are neat
0: yes and That's i had to neat. say it was really great he had a lot to share um it upsets me that, that we I, I have to trim it because I'm just letting everyone know, had I not trimmed this episode, it would be over an hour. <laughs> uh, but it was a great interview, and I want to thank him for coming on. That was wonderful. Um, again, be on the lookout. We're actually working, um, Cameron, Chris, and I, we did release the first video. Uh, it is on YouTube and on our Facebook page. We are working on an opening and a closing like, like a montage thing. (laughs) Uh, Almost going to feel like, like, you know, 80s or or 90s TV opening-esque. And um, we're working on getting that for the next, we have like three episodes ready to go. And then we're going to just roll the whole thing out. It's going to be awesome. And I think you guys are going to like it. Um, Chris is doing a lot to compliment what we are doing. So it's going to tie into a lot of the episodes we've done the past few months. And I think you guys are going to really like it. And again, check out the charity events. Please come support. Uh, we're in the we're in the works of getting a tournament up and running too, and we're going to try to get a few other events here and there, and a few more that you guys can participate in. I, I will say though, we got a ton of prizing, so when you donate, you're automatically entered, and all the information will be up online once that's posted. But, like, I want to get this out. You guys you guys are going to love some of this stuff. It's really cool. So thank you, everyone, for your support. Thank,
1: thank you, you Don. Yes, thank me. Everyone thank me, actually.
0: <laughs> Don, you are going to be so much more helpful for me in this next episode because we're going to be talking more about plants again. And I feel like an idiot when it comes to plants.
1: I'm excited. Plants are great.
0: Yeah, we're going to have Jared back. We're going to talk about some more plant Pokemon.
1: Sweet. So,
0: All right, we'll see you guys next time. Take care, everyone, and be safe.
1: Have a good one.